I expected this, but I was a bit surprised, even sadly surprised. I know that some people might have different opinions, so we can agree, we can disagree, but this is the dialogue, communication. But when I see people with newly created accounts, and then I see someone attacking my Twitter, like 50 accounts created on the same date that follow each other, like four to five followers on each one, and they're just posting the same post again, that I'm some kind of corrupted and criminal and whatever. This is childish. That was Alina Tustanovska, and this is the second episode of the Get to Know the Near Community Fund Trustees. I really enjoyed this episode because Alina is one of those characters that you may have heard about her when she got appointed for the new role as trustee, or you may know of her work, but as the conversation goes, we keep unpacking so many layers of insight, experience, humor that I was quite honestly blown away by the end. We go all the way back to how she discovered Bitcoin and the meaning that this technology could have on the future, the way in which her company starts gaining experience in the blockchain ecosystem by developing mining software that could be used on multiple blockchains, the way in which by delivering more and more products on mainnet, they start getting requests from third parties to build work and the transition into becoming a dev outsourcing company. How OFP asked them to build on Nier, even when Alina and their devs didn't have any idea about Nier, and so much more. Overall, I am really proud to create this episode because this is a conversation that tackles many of the big problems and taps into many of the big conversations happening in the ecosystem right now. Without further ado, let's jump into this wide-ranging conversation with Alina. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, it is an absolute honor to have with me Alina Tustanovska. Alina is the COO at Inc4, CEO at Spaceport Labs, and most recently, trustee from the Near Protocol Community Treasury. She's also friends with Open Forest, Pembroke Finance, Team Karma Coin, and I'm sure a lot more. Welcome, Alina. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thanks so much for making the time. I know that we tried a couple of times and it's not always easier to coordinate, but I'm very excited to have you because you were the second, not to say one of the only two, that responded to my call, to my proposal, to my idea to give a platform to the community trustees. As it is often the case in governance, it didn't take very long for there to be some drama, misunderstanding, confusion. So I thought, I know Alina, I'm not worried. We need to give her a platform so that everyone can get to know her at the same level and bring that level of trust that we need for all these governance structures. Floor is yours. Thank you for having me here. I'm ready to share. I am ready for transparency. I am ready to provide any background on me, on my activities, on my company on our participation in the development of NIR as a relatively new blockchain, new technology. If we talk about the community and the fuss that's going on around the NDC, the trust, and I do understand that change is quite fussy sometimes. And there's people who are a bit cautious about change. I wasn't surprised when the idea of the trust was introduced and about everybody were wondering, like, who are those people? What are they going to do? Whether they are trustworthy? whether they are 
the people we can rely on. I am here to assure everyone that you can trust us. We are open, we are transparent, and we are here to facilitate the near community to grow this ecosystem. The whole idea of the NDC of decentralization, of giving the community the power to decide to, to develop, this is something that is worth dedicating efforts to. And it's worth my time. And that's why I'm here. That is one of the traits that I think are required of community trustees and governance in general. The ability to express yourself freely, openly, to think critically. Maybe a good place to start would be, I am super intrigued because I actually don't know this. How did you get into the wonderful world of crypto? I know that you've been working in various roles for various companies for a very long time now. But usually everyone has like a personal story of how they got in and evolved. So I'd love to hear yours. Oh, it's a long story. It all started with Bitcoin, of course. Bitcoin, come on. It was something new. It was something fresh. It was something out of my understanding. When it happened, when everybody started talking about it, when everybody started using it, actually, not everybody, but certain people that you know in the area, and they've just, they were so confident that this is the future, that, that blockchain is the future, actually. It was, I was intrigued, really. And I immediately got interested. So when it all started, everybody were talking about this financial system, the Bitcoin as is. But then later, when I started figuring things out, I understood that uh, not about crypto at all. It's all about the technology. Blockchain is something way out of, People's imagination for me, it started in around 2015 when they started like real deep dive into the blockchain, the concept, it took a lot of pains to understand, to accept, because it, you're always cautious about such things. And especially some things that you really have this hint, like somewhere deep inside that it's a game changer. Something is going to change dramatically for everybody. And when you reach to that point of understanding, you feel cautious and won't accept it. But when you start getting to know it better, you start becoming friends with the idea and you getting into this flow. When it all started for me, when I started really working with this, it was my company decided to come up with a product. So we've been in the advertisement commercial business, like nothing related to development as is. So we had technical team who've been like facilitating our platform. We've been doing some stuff, but we never really focused ourselves on, on development, on, on the software development. So we decided to start the product. It was the mining pool. Bitcoin, it was okay. The day was mineral.io. So why the miner all? Because we decided to come up with an algorithm that would allow facilitating mining for different coins at the same time. But this algorithm was smart because it was dedicated to redirecting the mining powers to a chain that is the most responsive and the most convenient at the point. So meaning that basically if you have a mining power and you get to our pool, your power can mine different coins at the same time, depending on which coin is better to be mined at this very moment. You know I'm actually I mean? super curious. I 100% follow you because I had two mining rigs in Venezuela. Oh, okay. I bought them in 2017 uh, with my profits from that early bull run. And afterwards, I was like, what do I do with these machines? 
And a lot of people don't understand that there was actually a long period, 2018, 2019, even like the first half of 2020, maybe, where a lot of these miners were operating at a loss and electricity for me was basically free. And a lot of miners were spending a lot of time tracking the entire market, any shit coins, you just don't care. Basically, it was an equation of what is the difficulty of the network? What is the value of the asset? How much can I mine? There's a dollar value that you can attach per day or per hour. And my friend Fritz, which you probably know, he was the one helping me with my mining rigs. And now I'm really curious whether we may have actually been using mineral or mineral or some other solution that was similar. But at some point, my rigs were doing that. They were mining like that something one day and then the other one the other day and i think it even had a way to sell off everything and revert back to a base currency so yeah highly innovative i think that it goes to show that you understood the market and the customer segment of the miners very well oh yeah i love it yeah yeah we've been into it for quite some time it was a high peak for us and when we started this it was it got so popular we were on the list of top 10 during mining pools, though our pool was actually the multi-coin mining pool. And this was basically the main value proposition that was given to the miners out there. Then we decided that we wanted our own miner software. So we came up with the Moonstone miner and it has this sophisticated algorithm to actually allow you even more, like it was optimizing the mining power so that your specific mining power within the pool was the most effective for getting the rewards. It was an interesting experience for me because I was leading the technical team on the development of this product. And uh, yeah, we've, during that, I think around three years, like starting from 2016 by 2019, that's when I really gotten into like crypto, blockchain, at the total understanding what's going on in there and on the technical level. This is something that was just incredible for me because I never actually deep dived into the technologies and now I knew and we understood the whole potential of this whole thing. And considering the fact that there were not many development companies at the market at that time, like who were specialized in blockchain. So this experience with the minor role, it's given us expertise needed for us to become basically the players on the market of the software development in there. because. We had people started contacting us like, guys, can you actually help develop or can you actually help sustain or can you help us support something that we already started on, but we do not know how to finish this. And this is how it all started for us in this area of the software development in the blockchain niche. It's fascinating because there's always different levels of understanding. I used to say that there's like awareness of a brand, say Solana or Polygon, everyone knows about them. Then there's people that get involved at an investment stage. So some people may hold whatever, Ethereum, Solana. Then there's people that have used the blockchains and they understand what the experience of using it is like and you start to understand the problem. Somewhere along the line, if you're like product-minded or technical-minded, you start to think of what you could potentially use the technology for. Let's say it's a more proactive, but still idealistic. And then there's the deep end of people that actually understand how the technology works, and especially the challenges that we have. If you were around since 2015 and building all these minor pools, the team would have been involved in building core infrastructure. 
like you sit down and you have a whiteboard and you're like, this is what we want to do. This is all the shit that has to happen for us to actually get there. And it's a tough grind. As you're talking, what I keep trying to think and what I'd like to try to convey to people are talented crypto in general is scarce. And when you start to see people on talent that have that vast experience, you know, early days, Ethereum, in-depth hardware, in-depth software for optimizing hardware, the question that we should always be asking at the near ecosystem is, how can we attract these people? How can we attract this talent? How can we hyperscale our growth and our journey by bringing in these teams? It's not just a random from the street that we want to attract. It's not the raw number of people. It's the raw number of years of experience and technical depth. I'm, I'm enjoying the story so far, but I'll let you, I'll let you continue. I think we're up to 2018. <laughs> okay, no, I, I think I'll just skip the 2018. I'll go straight to 2019. Yeah, that was a rough one. <laughs> yeah. The first development experience that we had on the like outsource level. So when we've been approached by someone else's product, there's this L1 blockchain called, now it is the AirDAO. It's been rebranded. Previously was the Ambrosis network. So it was the Ethereum compatible L1 that was dedicated to the, let's say, it should have been solving the problems of logistics based on blockchain technology. And what we're talking is that basically the internet of things, there's a lot of produce that involves different levels of, let's say, production. So if we talk about, let's say, milk, your product. So it starts with the cow, where this cow grows, where it actually eats the pastures, the facilities, then it brings milk, the milk gets pasteurized or whatever, like certain types of production has, then it gets packed, then it gets shipped somewhere, and then it gets to the store where the actual consumer grabs it from the shop. The main problem with all this produce is that it lacks transparency for the end user or to the end consumer to understand where it came from, whether it was produced based on the standards. So the supply... And I recall this goes back to 2018 as well, the blockchain center in Melbourne. I had some people pitch me the idea and I thought this is one of those categories that everyone says the blockchain can use, but I didn't quite get it. It was almost becoming a buzzword. But somebody was explaining to me, coincidentally, on the same example of milk, that there's even a lack of transparency and coordination between the parties involved in the supply chain. Like, for instance, I can't believe that there is one truck that goes from farm to farm collecting all the milk. And it's actually very hard for them to assess how much milk is coming from each farm and like the different quality of the milk. Like, it's actually a rough deal for farmers. And for the user, it's the same because you don't really know one maybe pasture fed, the other one burned down last year. <laughs> like it's, there's a lot of information that is living, if it exists, it can be living in like closed databases from one company. And traditionally, it's just been very hard to grant access to that data or to that information to other things. Blockchain can definitely improve on that. Well, side. you can make it public. You can ensure that all of the entries out there, they stay like they remain in their authentic and you cannot change them. So basically the immutability of data was the main goal we wanted to achieve here was the supply chain. And actually like the founder of this chain, he even went to the TED Talks to talk about this. It was a revolutionary idea at that time. So they came to us 
as we were the mining pool guys, let's say, and they were like, okay, are you into blockchain? Do you know what you're doing? And we're like, oh, okay, we're a little bit, like we know something. They were making our mindset. We know we could yeah, try. Yeah, something so it was like part of the chain was ready. Part of the nodes were ready, but actually the whole chain was not launched because there were some, let's say, issues. So they asked us whether we could support it, whether we could provide the deploy systems for this whole chain to actually go live to the mainnet. And this is what we did. So our company was hired to start this L1 and to finally have the supply chain go live. And this is how our chore, let's say, was the software development in the blockchain need actually started as an outsource company. And this is where we understood that, that there's a lot of people there who want to use blockchain, who want to implement blockchain. But since the technology was quite new, so we were like one of not many guys who actually knew what to do with it. And that was like this quick jump. And this is where the Ink 4 actually was born. Let me know if at any point I'm speaking out of turn because I can just identify so many of the things that you say because I've come across in my own journey. I think at this point that we need to make a really big distinction with the categories or types of consultants, or I guess like third-party providers. Because in my world, I, I'm a lawyer by training and heaps of my friends are consultants, the big usual suspects. And especially in areas like technology, people are a little bit skeptical, if not outright reject them. Because consultants have a bad tendency to say yes to anything. There is a team out there that will just sign the contract and get all the money in. And then they'll try their best to find someone to do the job, probably like a graduate from university or something. So that notion of if you're not building it yourself or whatever, and you're trying to get a third party, sometimes sometimes has a bad reputation. But what I've seen in blockchain, it's, a, it's actually the other way around. There's people that are very highly specialized and it can be much more efficient to engage with these very highly specialized teams than to try to learn or do it yourself. Or I guess it's very dependent on the product and the team, but there's definitely the case where there's just a lot of value that accumulates in smaller groups of people. And they're almost like the catalyst. That's where I would probably place Inc. 4. Deep expertise accumulates over time. It's actually a value add to have the team be able to come in and support a project as opposed to the classic consultant. Is it called a hire for kill, kill for hire, whatever? Yeah. <laughs> Any money is good money. Just, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this is how, what we understood, actually, the value that we can deliver. We immediately decided, the founders of the company, me, we decided that we have this expertise and we can actually can grow it. So we have, maybe we were, not maybe, for sure, we were lucky at some point because we had real talents. Like when we started, there was not much of us. Like when we started the minor role, it was around, I don't know, 20 people in the company or something. And basically we had around, I don't know, 10 to 12 people were developers. They were talented, good developers, but they also didn't know anything about blockchain at that point. So they started learning. We all learned. And when we understood that we have this core, this core that can actually share expertise. At that point, 
you just know that you can, you can scale it to any level you need. We decided that we just got together. When we started with this, with Ambrosis, we decided that we can actually try to open a, another division in the company, let's say out, outside of the product one that could provide the outsourced services in this specific niche. Because it was interesting to us, since we had this multi-coin pool, we've been gaining expertise in different blockchains with different technology. Like anything that was on the market, anything that appeared on the market, it immediately hit our eye. And we didn't know that we like deep dive and understand what's going on in there. One, two, three years, and we became real experts. This is when Bing4 started growing tremendously because there were people who were just addressing us, just contacting us. And since we had the products already ready-made, since we've demonstrated our expertise based on the real things that were out there in mainnet and they were live, people trusted us. Based on this trust, on the trust of our clients and people who actually engaged us for some help, assistance, or maybe even as partners, we managed to set up this brand based on real market trust. And this is where we are now. And this is something that I'm really proud of. Oh, you're muted. Great, because I usually interrupt people, so I'll mute myself. That is such an important piece. You have to be proud of your work. Ideally, I have a ton of friends. It's not like they're ashamed of their work, but they're also not proud of it. It may be mundane work. It may be boring. They may be chasing ambulances to sue people after a car accident. Whatever the case may be, there's very few people that can actually say, I'm proud of my work. I'm personally getting to that point now where I'm not releasing podcasts with the frequency that I want. I'm not releasing YouTube videos with the frequency that I want. But when I do pump them out, I'm proud of it. The editing goes in, the time to prepare for the interview goes in. I canceled our initial interview time because I was on antibiotics. I wasn't feeling well. I was like, I don't want to half-ass it. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this right. It's good to see that there is that sense of ownership and pride, especially because I would imagine that it would be challenging being a third-party provider building the technology to assume that ownership of a product or a company when in reality 50% or more of it depends on an external team and then there's all the uncertainty on the market. Like It's very rough for builders to see a good product or good execution not have the success that they were expecting. Of course. It's all about yeah. responsibility. It's all about taking up certain crate of ownership, actually. When you create product for someone, you still own it at a certain point. At least until you're finally sure that you can like know that it's completed, that it's up to the specs, that this is something that really meets the expectations of the person who actually asked you to create it. And this is important. And another one, which is really important is the, the trust element with the client, because this is something that you got to build throughout the whole path that you're going to with your clients. This is tremendously important. Sometimes it is a hard road, but uh, well, we know how to do it actually. And it's also like kind of experience because the first case is when we had, we didn't know how to convince the person that we have expertise, not about expertise, because expertise is actually something that was shown on the market already, but that we have this, the stamina to take this up, that we have enough courage to complete it, to deliver and to, to take responsibility. If something goes wrong with the product, we are always there to fix it. And this is something that you need to assure the person who is actually, because, because basically when, when someone comes up to you with a business plan, it's their budget, it's their time, 
basically for them, it looked like gambling. Like you, you choose someone, but you're not sure. You are not sure. They can just, they cannot just disappear on, or at a certain level, they can just say, sorry, but uh, we cannot deliver this. Or they deliver something, but this something really looks out of the scope of expectations. It is so challenging to communicate those soft skills. Oh, yeah. People's honesty, work ethics, the ability to think critically. If I hand over some specs and there is an error in it, please do not be the hired gun that will execute. Even if you know that there's an error in the spec and the product is going to flop the minute it goes out because it just doesn't make sense. Let's have a conversation and as you say, there's a sense of ownership. Like it's my company, you're building it, it's your product, but it is. There needs to be that proactiveness. Like as you say, just take pride in your work. And you'd be surprised, especially with the power dynamics that we have where there's less developers than opportunities available. A lot of people just like rinse and repeat through projects and then hand it over. I was thinking of an analogy around the pride in the execution and the build, but then not really being responsible for what the owner of the project does afterwards. It's something like a Mercedes-Benz. These cars come out of the factory, immaculate attention to detail. Like you could look under the hood, like everything is, it's been perfectioned over a long period of time high standards in the automobile industry. If you sell your car to someone and they go down the road and crash it the next day, it's really sad, but it's not your problem. Assuming that the car wasn't faulty, the wheel didn't fall out and it flipped or something. So I, I think that's the sort of dynamic that we'll look at, not just in building products, but we could probably translate some of this to governance, right? You have the highest standards, you put in all the pieces in place, to enable someone else to succeed. Part of the execution and part of the work inevitably falls from someone else. So it's that back and forth of, okay, how do we choose a team that has the right makeup to get all the core pieces in place to then put the onus back on someone else? And we may be jumping ahead, but I really like that when this unhinged Anon on the forum was making some claims, which to be clear, I am fine with pseudonymous accounts and I'm fine with people asking questions. I just want to make sure that people ask them in a respectful way that actually enable a conversation as opposed to out of the gate, asking in a tone that is accusing people of stuff. There's just like bad will. It seems like it's just trying to tear someone down as opposed to get clarity. And I really liked how you responded because... Not only was all the information there and you made a very strong case for yourself, but that's something that I personally look for in leadership. And that is a bit of a pet grievance that I have now with some parts of DNDC. I do not like leaders who simply say, this is community run. The community decides. Well, if the community decides and this is community run, what the fuck are you doing in that position? There needs to be a sense of ownership. There needs to be a sense of leadership. To some extent, we are counting on a person or a group of people to get something done in an area. And I think that it was a trial by fire, but you really stood out. And even coming on the podcast, I know that the other trustees are just busy. It's not out of goodwill. I haven't reached out personally, but being proactive and being like, I have nothing to hide. Like I'm proud of what I've done. And if there's an issue, 
I'll deal with it. I really like that. Since you touched the topic, what I dislike about this whole thing most, I am okay with accusations. I'm okay with allegations. I'm fine with this because maybe partially because I'm a lawyer and I know, I know how to work with these things. Like I know this type of communication. I'm fine with that. What I really don't like is whenever you want to post an accusation or whatever claim you have to another person, especially publicly, show yourself first. I want to know who you are. This is the main thing that really struck me as this level of immaturity, of partial certain type of immaturity in this community. What I didn't like. People who do not want to tell who they are, what they are, what they've actually done before starting conversation with other people, what they're doing in this very same community. I expected this, but I was a bit surprised, even sadly surprised. And another one that struck me is that if you want to start the conversation and that I'm open because I've started responding, I could just, just leave it up. I could just not dedicate my attention to this. And it would be okay because the real members of this community, the real people who build this thing with me, starting from the very start this year, they know who I am. Not all of them, of course, but people know me. I know people. And I know whom I can really talk to about this ecosystem. I know that some people might have different opinions. So we can agree, we can disagree, but this is the dialogue, communication. But when I see people with newly created accounts, and then I see someone attacking my Twitter, like 50 accounts created on the same date that follow each other, like four to five followers on each one, and they're just posting the same post again, that I'm some kind of corrupted and blah, 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 criminal and whatever. This is childish. Like, guys, tell me who you are. Like, tell me your name. There was this guy who was trying to, actually trying to talk to me, I think. I don't know. But when I asked, can we talk about you first? You know who I am, right? I have introduced myself, my company, because I've introduced this too. Like everybody knows about me, my activities in the near, because I made sure that this information is clear to everybody. And then he says, I live there and I'm a father. I'm like, okay, I'm very happy for you as a person. But we are talking about you being part of this community, your commitment to this community. Because if you're saying that you were the one who actually made decision of, on uh, appointing me to the position of being a trustee and you are ready to hold this responsibility, then why are you asking me these questions now? And uh, if you want to open dialogue, okay, let's get together, we can talk. But posting things, just posting things, being a no-name, it's a kind of, uh, it's immaturity. While we have this in the community, there will be no community-driven NDC. There's going to be something in between where there's going to be people who are ready to take responsibility and people who are just ready to make fuss around everything and to look for certain cases where everybody wants to deceive them. As I mentioned before, I'm of two minds on this, probably very case-specific. Like, I've seen some pseudonymous accounts in the forum. I have my suspicions on who they are. One of them, I think it's someone from the foundation. One of them is a validator, but they remain pseudonymous, I guess, to avoid some of the politics. So I could actually go the other way. You go pseudonymous to not bring in any personal baggage, or I guess to avoid unleashing attacks, you know, in the other direction. But the core principle there has to be the message needs to stand and resonate regardless of who says it. So if we remove the poster and we only read the message, it needs to make sense. Honestly, I don't give a fuck if we know who posted it. It's still garbage. And 
that's usually where I try to focus. Like, I don't dismissing people on who they are or what they may have done, although it definitely matters. But I think that matters more because if we look at it as a user research cycle, sometimes it helps me understand where they're coming from. Their grievance may actually not be you as a trustee. Their grievance may actually be that the original hub got cancelled. Or their grievance may actually be that someone that they know is corrupt. Fact. And they now are projecting that onto everywhere. So it's very hard because you're a lawyer, I'm a lawyer. Maybe we can have a bit more nuance to tease out these arguments. A lot of people don't have that. I do agree that it is a problem in the community. It is very childish. We have to find a way to grow out of it. My message has always been, this is destroying more value than it is creating. Yeah. Even if the grievances were legitimate, they are being expressed and pursued in such a terrible way. More people are leaving the ecosystem than joining. That's just the truth. No one wants to post in the governance forum. Unless you're asking for money, no one will post there. And unless you actually need money, nobody asks for grants because they just don't want to go through that grueling process. I think it's getting a little bit better. I don't know if it's just because it's a bit more quiet. We've been very stringent on the marketing DAO to have very high guidelines to get rid of a lot of the lower quality proposals. There was actually one more point I wanted to ask your journey into crypto, and then we can go full-fledged into community. But it's actually connected. If you feel comfortable sharing, I'm really curious to see how growing up and living in Ukraine has shaped that crypto narrative, the perception of value, the availability of talent local, just how you see the world and what it represents as a tool for improving things. Wow, it's a tough one, <laughs> let's say. If you want to know it from this perspective, I'd say that then it's not about crypto, actually. It's about technologies or any technology because it's historically somehow happened that in Ukraine, there's a lot of people who started adopting technologies from the very, very start, like from the basis. Because currently, we, I can talk about today to basically to demonstrate this result, let's say. But most of the things that now facilitate our living, and I mean our just regular common living, it is so based on technologies, like on every level. For example, banking systems, all of your money, all of the services that the bank can provide, it's all in my smartphone, literally. I can move my funds. I can pay my taxes. I can submit any agreements, contracts that I have with my clients for the tax reporting to the authorities via my phone. I do not need to go any institutions or whatever. It was so. I don't know, around 10 years ago, I think it was how, seriously, it was how. Like you had to go through all of these circles of bureaucracy all over again, just to submit your tax declaration. It was a mess. And I see that in certain countries in Europe, it's still so. Like when I come to especially, I don't know, thousands, I say the south of Europe are more keen on this. Whenever I need the postal service, it's, it sometimes gets like ridiculous. You want to mail something like some documents or whatever. You can't even sometimes do it from the first attempt. You need to make a few attempts to do that. You come to the post office, you start like dealing with all of these things and you understand that this is practically impossible. When I was actually shipping my, the contract that I've signed for the trust, 
I, I had to ship it physically. It's okay in the legislature. I know that it is like at certain points, okay, not a problem, but I shipped it from here, from Ukraine. While it took pains for the postal services to get along because of the war situation here, DHL and all the UPS, all the regular services, they do work here, but we have certain discrepancies right now with the flows, let's say. But uh, still, it, it got in from Ukraine, from the actual country where the war is going on. And once it reached Europe, the nightmare started because my enforcer couldn't find where this freaking contract is. Seriously, his local post office where he sent it to, he was not there. And then it turned out like I called my postal services here. They started calling those postal services and all of the circles around. And we came to the point that it was somewhere. It was at a certain division of some local postal service that it was not supposed to be there, but it was there waiting for the recipient actually. And well, long story short, he got it. But my contract was actually reaching him for around like three weeks or something. Ridiculous, man. It was you. I remember we were asking for yeah, updates and they were like, yeah, there are some delays. Some of the paperwork is missing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah when I saw it it, it, it was because of the situation in Ukraine, but it turned out, no, it was about the regular situation in Europe. <laughs> the way they do it. So either you're using like some private service and then they manage to do things like clear. But whenever you use the regular services, that's basically any country, any, I don't know, government or whatever should provide to you. This is a nightmare. So in Ukraine, we just... We just got rid of this thing. And now, like, I have my phone and all of the identities, like my driver's license, my passport, my international passport, thing, everything, my taxpayer's declarations, all are in this phone. And I have this one simple application provided for me by my government that keeps this whole thing together and it's trusted. So I do not even know where my paper passport is, actually. It's somewhere in my apartment. I don't need it. Because it's all here and it's accepted by everyone. We have this QR code, it's scanned everywhere. This is the system that was built based on technology. And the sole reason we have this in Ukraine is that Ukrainians managed to adopt the technologies to get smart with technologies real fast. The same thing with internet. We have the fastest and the cheapest internet in Europe. Just because we decided that we need it, we facilitated it for the people. And it works. We have... Mobile internet, Wi-Fi is everywhere. It's fast. It's super cheap. It's effective. Whenever I get to Europe, same thing. It, you know, sometimes it's challenging to get a good internet service. And it's usually it's costly. So what I mean is that why blockchain namely and the crypto and stuff was really adopted in Ukraine at a certain point. And now we have a lot of people from the market actually requesting services in terms of software development, technology development in Ukraine. Because we understood once this whole thing appeared that it's time to market. And uh, Ukrainians are real smart enough to adopt this real quick. And we are we're flexible. We know how to adapt real quick. And this is something that brought our country because seriously, after the Soviet Union, it was a disaster here. It was savage. We had only fields here. But uh, some, okay, some produce was here. But I mean, that technology-wise, we were just on a zero level. And this is how we managed to grow, I don't know, 30 years. And we are here, basically on the top of technology. Because right now, what I see even from the client approaching my company, they request services from the United States. 
And the United States, like it's a, it's a good technology foundation. Not all of the states, there are certain areas where the technology are more adopted. There's a lot of software development companies who do stuff. But of course, it is cheaper in Ukraine, but the level of expertise and the quality of the work is no worse. The main thing that that was provided by the, the inventiveness of our people. And this is why I'm so proud my country, my people, and this is something that we fight for now. I love it. And that's the reason I ask, because even though the podcast platform that I use to upload and distribute the episodes, Transistor recently gave me a badge. Now we have listeners in over 50 countries. Most of them are in English speaking countries, US, UK, Australia. And you'd be surprised how many people in these countries don't know much about history, if at all. I have a history major and I loved it. In 2018, I went from Vienna all the way to St. Petersburg by bus, Bratislava, Budapest, up through Poland, Baltic States. I couldn't go into Ukraine because I needed a visa at the time. And I didn't end up in Helsinki because it was too expensive and it was the end of my trip. I was already broke. But there were two histories that complement each other. There was a textbook history that I learned at uni, the things that you know that happened. And then there were all the city tours and all the historical background that you start picking up along the way. And what I found fascinating was, especially when you get to Estonia, Estonia probably has a very similar journey as Ukraine occupied by both the Nazis and the Russians, over 60 years of being seriously held back. They become free, but there's nothing there. Finland offered to donate their old mobile equipment and towers, and they were like, no, we're okay. And they've been relentlessly shipping and building and reinventing themselves. So technology, it's not just a way to catch up and their opportunity to have their market but also it's a way to escape their bureaucracy. And I don't even want to imagine how the fuck a country goes from being occupied to a new government, like all the laws, all the processes, it is complicated enough as it is in most places. Imagine that transition. It's super interesting to hear the, all the experience and the reflection from someone on the ground. There is one book, I don't know if you've read it, it's called Startup Nation. It's about Startup. Israel. I haven't read it yet. I am trying to remember the name of the author. It'll come back to me. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's a great book because there's a lot of startup wisdom there. But one of the things that really stuck to me is that adversity is one of the key things that drive people in Israel. And there's a specific example in one of the many instances that they've had where Tel Aviv was actually under fire. If you walked outside, which you shouldn't, like the Iron Dome was blocking hundreds of missiles and they had an Intel factory in Tel Aviv and they were like, hey, Intel America, we're getting bombed and people still showed up to work and they were fucking proud and they were like, you know what? We're being boycotted. We can't export or import anything from land or it's got some restrictions, but we're exporting and building technology. That's what we do. And it's that sense of ownership and proactivity. And if you were to flip it, I feel like the US is almost on the opposite spectrum. It's their excesses and their luxury. They think that they can sit on top of a technology and dictate to the world how things are going to be. They don't need to innovate. They already have all the money. They already have all the power. And 
even if you go to San Francisco, sure, there's a big concentration of builders there, but the city is collapsing. Like I was more worried about my safety and I saw more homeless people and like just horrific stuff in San Francisco than in Venezuela. Because I went to Venezuela and then had a stopover in San Francisco on my way to Australia. That's where I sort of question people's drive, people's motivations. And honestly, that's what we need. The near ecosystem, I described it in episode, I think it was like 15 or 16 over a year ago, as a 200 pound gorilla. We cannot fool ourselves thinking that because we're a top 40 coin, billion dollar valuation, whatever metrics you want to look at, this is a fucking baby. We need to be proactive. We need to treat it like a startup. We need to assume that if we don't do what it takes right now, we're going to be dead in 12 months. That's a level of dedication and commitment that I think we need. Some of that is personal. Some of that is definitely informed by your environment. I'm a big proposer of the global south. Australia, it's there, but in general, we've got incredible contributors from Southeast Asia, from Africa, from South America. The what should we call it? The global East. Eastern Europe is definitely standing out as a top contributor as well. Like these are the stories that we need to give visibility and find ways to empower these teams. Yeah, totally agree with you. And I think that this is how it's going to be actually. It's, I don't see this process as being reversible at certain, at least in certain locations. That's what I see for sure. And for Ukraine, it's a hundred percent case. So I know that the this change, this huge leap in development that we've already taken, it's irreversible. So we're gonna just keep all moving forward because this is the way our mentality works. We cannot do it differently. We've already overcome being different. So they they say that in Soviet schools they thought that the Charles Darwin said that the strongest species survive. Actually, this is not what he said. Is that those survive for more adapted to change. And that's, and this is, this is a critical point because being strong doesn't mean that you can overcome all of the obstacles that might actually happen. All of the black swans can actually happen and you cannot be ready for everything. But if you can have this ability to adapt fast, you're flexible, then these are the ones who are going to survive. So this is how I see right now, how the communities in Ukraine grow actually, and the technology wise as well, of course. So yeah, definitely. I'm proud to be part of this nation, really. You're selling it to me. I'm close to booking flights. Like it's summer okay. there soon. Um, of course, you should come. I'll show you around. In due time. It's, it's It was definitely in my plans, actually, before things got a bit more complicated. But now I'm looking at potentially basing myself in Budapest or Prague okay. just before Nearcon. Spent about three months in Europe. Maybe go to Morocco. It's fascinating that these are principles that we've always known. But you know what's different? The notion of a digital state that caters for everyone. There are some tensions with that concept because even if you look at the startup world, we have a very simple distinction. There's fixed mindset and there's growth mindset. And uh, ideally it's a self-selection mechanism. If you don't have a growth mindset, you're not doing startups, but also the startups community is very dismissive. If you've got a growth mindset, you don't waste your time talking to someone with a fixed mindset. Maybe they'll get it when it's done. Maybe they'll be late adopters and laggards. Maybe they'll never use your product. That's fine. You have the growth mindset, you and the few people that do. It's on you to build and you have to remove all these distractions. 
that's where I find challenging about the new ecosystem. Like how much time do we waste responding to this fixed mindset people that are very, very worried about like dollar value now? I keep saying the same thing. I don't give a fuck how much it costs. Can it deliver 10x in value? Can we see this ecosystem grow? I saw it in other ecosystems and to some extent near. Every time they had a big hackathon, million dollar in prices, market cap doubled. Like in 2020, I bought both Near and Solana at $1.80. Near went to 20 bucks, Solana went to 250. They spent like drunk sailors. They had a hacker house in Europe every week in a different city. Like the summer of love, Solana was real. We were not as proactive. We've always struggled a bit on the community side. So I guess that's always my focus. Even if we're not perfect now, even if there is spending or whatever the case may be, have the growth mindset. What do we have to do? What has to be true for this to be 10 times bigger? Yeah, but about responding, what I thought is that actually when I got to this board and I started reading the messages on different opinions and I was choosing actually whether I'm going to respond and, as you say, waste my time or like dedicate some time to this response or not. My choice to still dedicate, let's say, was structured up to a thought that maybe, there, not maybe, but for sure, I'm going to put this here because of the people who will actually be reading these comments and this whole conversation and history. And if there is a chance that someone is going to have some doubts or someone will look at the whole concept of the trust at the NDC, of all of these ideas that we're trying right now, that we're trying to grow with this decentralization of the of near ecosystem and stuff, so that they could have more information and more background to stay with, to think about. So this is why I'm basically doing this. It's not about responding to a certain individual who decided to put the conversation this way. I don't care what they think, like freely. I don't care. I don't know whether it sounds good or not, whether it sounds mature or not, but I like, I want to be honest. I really don't care what they're saying because there is a type of conversation that should be held. And this is the conversation based on fact, on real opinions. And when we're talking about like this type of small talk, so usually it's not, it's not something that you really dedicate time to convince a person who is actually doing this. It's better if you, it's more if you just put your thoughts next to the person's thoughts so that everybody could take a look at this, could understand who you are and what's your opinion on this whole thing. What's your stand on this whole thing? That's why I, I've just posted a few responses and then I just stop. Now I see those messages, I still see them like, but those people who wanted to read out, they reached to me, first of all, like I talked to people. To some people, they reached and they asked, what's going on there? Well, how can you comment on this or that? So it's fine for me, like, to give response to a person who really is interested. And for those people who just, like, it floods with the forum just because they have nothing more to do. Okay, let it be. I'll just I mean, this of my time. <laughs> okay. That's a fantastic approach. And that is definitely the right way to do it. It just can be a hard balance to strike because there is don't feed the trolls, which is 100% the case. But then as you mentioned, it's more the sharing of information, obviously not for the person that you're responding to, because let's be honest, there is nothing that you say that will make them change their mind. Like when they have that combative tone and accusations and dragging you down, there is nothing you say that will change your mind. It's literally just 
draining your time and your energy. That's how they win. But for everyone else reading, especially my experience personally, and I did weigh in, same as you, I left one comment and I never went back into that thread. The thing that I found reassuring, I guess there's two waves. The first wave is this community is a fucking joke and I want to get out. And then the second wave is being reassured that there are adults in the room doing the work that needs to be done, even though if we don't see them every day on the forum, because they're out there doing the real work. Because they're busy. Yeah, exactly. Because they're busy. Yeah. I go on the governance forum to look at all the marketing DAO proposals and I come across some shit that honestly, I have to take days off. I need almost like a mental health break. I know that it's a meme. It's But honestly, it's insane. Some people are just no comment. But yeah, then yeah, I look at the town halls. in place all the time. They just tag him like, Blaze, there's corruption. Blaze, we need to remove her. Blaze, we need to remove him. They are in some kind of, they're going to steal our money. <laughs> there was hilarious one. They're going to steal our money. And I see that, of course, Blaze doesn't respond to this. Why would he's busy? He's doing the work, actually. Like, he's building then the sea while you are just, like, in a here. <laughs> Why would he? And that's not yeah, surprising. I mean, that's a real stand that's supposed to be taken. Yeah, and then there's the town halls. Basically, the builders. There's so many projects now that make me bullish. Few and far, Mint Base, I've got a call with them tomorrow. I've got a cheeky proposal. Key Palm. There's just so many people building stuff. You go to conferences, you go to hackathons. It's funny. You never see people having these fights in person at a conference. We had a near house. We slept together. And you didn't see people getting drunk and breaking bottles on each other's head and calling each other names. You have people that have the humility to come together and acknowledge that building is hard. And they sit on a table and they support each other. You ask questions like, hey, I'm doing this. It's not working. And then the building process is iterative by default. You know, the social side is always challenging because maybe it's harder to assess or pin down, but we need to get to the point where we can have the same humility, the same iteration. If we look back on anyone, not just you, not just me, literally anyone, if you look back long enough, and if you really want to, you're going to find instances of something that they've done or said that you can probably spin in a way that is negative to them. Oh, they got paid too much money at the peak of the bull market when everybody was getting paid a lot of money. Like you can't isolate things like that. Or they worked on a project that failed, or they said something 50 years ago before we had all this other information. Like it's really important to be able to like evolve, adapt. We keep coming back to adaptability. And yes, have the humility to accept that building an ecosystem is extremely hard. We mentioned before the warp speed guilds. That was an experiment. Didn't work. There's probably a lot that we could be said. What failed? On whom does it fall? Rather than finger pointing, I think that the important thing is to say, yes, I was there. I learned some lessons and I'm still here. Everything that I do is informed by those lessons. And that's a key difference. It's not, oh, you fucked up then and you're fucking up now. Or you took money then, you're taking money now. It's we keep learning with everything that we do and we keep iterating for the next lesson and the next lesson. That's why I don't like the attacks of it's always the same people at the top. 
taking charge. I personally do see it as a failure of community that we haven't grown to the point where we can see more and fresh faces taking that level of ownership. But overall, if you do have the experience and you do have the knowledge and you want to put in the effort to make it succeed, I don't think that we should be attacking people for being successful. I don't think we should be attacking people for taking ownership and wanting to see something succeed. Yeah, exactly. Because it takes work, it takes faith, it takes dedication. So something that we've already spent and something that we are ready to spend more to get to where we want to get. And this is just, this is another thing that's really, again, not surprised, but I, let's say I wanted not to face this here in this community. When they're saying like, okay, the recent post that my company had been paid for the services that we've done for the Near Foundation. And this, this is true because it's public information. There was a bond request. So like, we were, we got invoiced. I mean, everything was as, as per the flow, right? So now they're saying that I should be removed from the trust because my company does some work for the Near. Specifically, we've committed something to the, oh, so some part of work to the I'm Human application. We've committed some work to the near wiki widget on the near social, right? So this was work like with dedicated resource, we've dedicated our expertise again, our experience, our best developers to develop this or that part of the software. And it was the work being done by a company who got contracted for this. And now they're saying that it's corruption. And I'm like, where is the corruption? Do you want to do it for us? Like, why wouldn't you propose your services to the Near Foundation? Because it still needs to be built by someone. So if you believe that you do have expertise, like we have these forums, everything is public. Everyone applies for providing certain services or assisting or helping Near. So what's the problem with my company being a software development company in the blockchain niche to have contracts with the Near to build for them for money because this is business? Like it, it works like this. So me being as a trustee is a completely different level of responsibility of work of, of dedication. Again, my dedication to near, like why I want to be this trustee, why I accepted the role. I knew that there would be this kind of talk. I knew I specifically went through all of the documents to understand whether I do have this conflict of interest everybody are talking about, but no one can actually name it. That's the another point of concern of mine. They're saying that I have a conflict of interest, me being the CEO of the development company that does some work, provides some services to the Near Foundation, but they cannot name it because you cannot name it. There is no conflict of interest. The conflict of interest is is if, let's say, someone in the trust might be paid for certain services to be provided to the Near Foundation, this specific person should be selected by the trust itself. So this is where the conflict of interest lies, because basically I would have to vote for myself to be dedicated with certain opportunities. In my case, how can I actually influence the decision of the Near Foundation to provide contractual opportunities to my company? Just being the trustee of this trust. Could probably make a very strong case that if you want to be corrupt, the most stupid thing would be to actually become a trustee because that's when all the accountability falls on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I try to be patient with people because I tortured myself through seven years of law school and even a few as you study along, and I'm sure that you had similar experiences, I don't know if you ever practiced. Law is fascinating because 
it's one of those things where everything has a common sense meaning. And then there's the legal meaning with seven step criteria and the exception and the exception of the exception. And the so, you know, yeah. So a conflict of interest, as the name implies, there's A, there's B. Most people just see it as a relationship between the two. She works for company A. She is in trust. There's a new foundation. If you take that very high level view of a mere relationship between the parties, you will always have a conflict of interest, quote unquote, because by definition, we need someone to be a trustee that is deeply involved in near ecosystem. Exactly. The best candidates, by definition, all need to have a very strong connection to the near ecosystem. It, and it's not just their experience and their commitment, it's their reputation. The most valuable thing that we have in near and everywhere else is your reputation. Who is willing to put the reputation on the line and know that if you fuck up, you're out? And it's yep. a very serious undertaking. If you get a rando off the street, they don't give a fuck. They can take all their money and leave. They don't have any reputation. They don't know any of us and they don't care. But you go up and you know you're being judged by your peers. So anyway, that would be the high level view of the conflict of interest and the normy way of looking at it. But if we start to unpack it, and this is like real world, conflicts of interest occur all the time. And that's why... There are very well-defined processes to identify them, to isolate them, to mitigate them. And in the rare occasions where you can't mitigate them, to take actions. An example may be, or the clearest example, in the case of a trustee, you have to be the decision maker. If you get to decide on your own proposal, that will be a conflict of interest. First line of attack, you abstain. If it's not possible to abstain or say you abstain from the voting, but you may still be privy to information from your competitors because they all have to put in an application. In that case, they have this thing called Chinese walls. I don't know if they still call it that because they've been renaming everything to make it PC. Within law firms, Chinese walls are extremely common. It is not uncommon to see the same law firm represent both clients going in litigation against each other. You literally compartmentalize all the information and all the teams. And if needed, some lawyers have to step down like you can. This is not new. We're not reinventing the wheel. So once again, this is where I try to be patient and be like, okay, how much time do we spend giving a legal education to normies? There is definitely a baseline around how the trust works and why it is transparent, etc., and how much where do you cross the line to you're just wasting your time with someone that is not really here to learn and they just don't care. They just want to attack you. That's the fine balance that we have to strike. I will not be educating anyone. I mean, in terms of, of legal understanding what's going on with the, with the trust, with the NDC and stuff. And I'll explain why. Because everything that built there till the date, it was built in close consultancy, in conversations, in communication with anybody who wanted to be involved. Because I've witnessed this. Everybody could be involved. There's a lot of working groups there. They work out all of the conditions that they could put in there to make it as transparent, as understandable as possible. 
And now what we have is that certain people, certain parts of the community got interested on this state. So this means that they need to go back and take a closer look of everything that's been done on road for this of this construction before we actually got we were almost on the on on the stage where we get to V1. So right now we're on V0, which is quite simple. And I think that this is extremely simple actually for basic understanding how it's gonna work further. We have documents, we have schemes, we have diagrams, like everything infographics, like drawings, explanations, town halls, meetings, regular weekly meetings, uh, a lot of telegram channels, government forum posts, like everything is there. It's not rocket science. It's not some uh, sophisticated legal stuff that you can get only from lawyers and only being like a lawyer oriented minds can actually grasp this. No, it is quite a common, simple thing to understand. It's just that you need to, you need to dedicate some time. You need to get into it. You need to understand what's going on there. What do these people actually want? Those people who are really involved in the process, who wanted to be involved. We have set this transparency commission. We have lawyers. The, the Near Foundation has lawyers. Like William, one of the brightest lawyers that I've met. We have the enforcer of our trust, Francesco, who is also a lawyer. These people, they are also available in the community. They can also explain anything you want, you want to explain. But I do not understand why I need to put efforts and time that I can actually dedicate to the real growth of the ecosystem, to building, to facilitating, and to making this happen. Like, why I need to dedicate this time to educate people that really do not want to be educated? Because at certain point, you understand that they do not want to understand. They want to tell you that what you've done is wrong. Like, what everybody's done collectively, and this is well, what we have now is the result of a tremendous work and efforts of a number of people, like a great number of people, everybody who wanted to dedicate their time, their expertise, their experience, their mind to this. And this is, this is, this is tremendous. And now a certain part of individuals just come up and just say, guys, what you're doing is shit because this is all corrupt. This is all Based on conflict of interest, this is no decentralization and, and then you're going to end up stealing our money. Like, how can you have yeah, time to this, really? Yeah, I think that the educate label may be a bit heavy, especially when I preface it with seven years of undergraduate studies. But this really takes us back to really understanding where people are coming from. And we have to be brutally clear. This is not an attack from a a good citizen wanting to make sure that there is no corruption in the NDC. And for people listening, I'm doing air quotes. These are people vying for power. Easy does it. If she's in the role, I can't be in the role. And it's actually a very twisted logic because I have reasons to believe that there are many people playing this political game that they are trying to get rid of people like DACA, like myself, like you, because we actually stand as a guard for transparency and accountability, and we're blocking a lot of the bullshit happening in this ecosystem. So once you understand that it's not even a personal attack, or I guess it is personal, but personal as part of those political games, no one gives a fuck when they make a forum post saying that my 
my proposal for a podcast as a conflict of history. They don't give a fuck. They don't listen to the podcast, clearly. And a few thousand dollars to them means nothing. They want to get rid of me in that role. Who they want to put in that role? Pay attention to see who's playing those games. And as you say, we have to look at their track record. Don't get me wrong. We have many people that would be great leaders for the community. I believe in rotation. We're just recruiting for advisors to the marketing DAO. People concerned with trustees. Maybe it's not the one that you would have picked. They'll rotate over time. Like All those things are fine. But we have to understand that politics are dirty. And not fool ourselves that some people playing the political game, which the number one tactic in the playbook is to attack people's reputation and to remove your opposition, let's not trick ourselves thinking that these people have the best intention and they really care about corruption. Those should be isolated from people that may have legitimate questions. Like for instance, Q2 budget for NDC is up. The label may seem big to some people. $500,000 for three months, I would be patient and open to at least answer questions, especially because we do have a challenge around the time it takes to catch up with all the chats and all the things that have been going on. I posted something in the governance forum recently called a vision for grassroots DAOs, and I tried to address some of these things or come up with simple frameworks to try to make it workable. So for instance, One of them is the 80-20 rule. I don't think or I don't like the idea of having career politicians. I think that we're building technology to escape bureaucracy. And I think that the people that dedicate their personal time to be a public servant shouldn't spend all their time. Like their best work should be in the community. Like for instance, you build stuff and up to 20% of your time, trustee duties. 80% of your time, we want you in the tech, with the products, with the builders. I don't want to call it real work because trustee work is still real work. But in my case, maybe I definitely do spend more than 20% in marketing DAO. But I shouldn't just be a king of marketing DAO and sit in my fat ass making decisions on behalf of someone else's work. I'm out there in the trenches. I make content. I go to conferences. Like, People need to be active in the community to then be eligible for these governance roles. Some people will definitely spend part-time, full-time, but they should be a minority. They should be very selected positions. Most people need to earn their way into this responsibility. And the flip side is we need to find a way to make it easy for people to stay up to date with what's happening, to make it possible for them to contribute. So for instance, I've said many times with the NDC, especially when there's like big proposals or consultations, we should reach out to people and ask them, like, let's be honest, they're not going to come to us proactively. Let's look who's in the new foundation roundtable. 30 projects have got all the TVL, all the growth, all the users, go and ask them. Because I worked for Metapool, Cloud using the roundtable, and I can tell you there is a huge gap between something like Claudia, who is grinding to keep a company alive and expanding multi-chain and doing the real work, his focus on the near ecosystem right now and his views on DNDC are between here and Mars apart from what people in DNDC, some may argue getting cushy salaries on admin duties, are thinking about. So we need to make governance approachable to more people and we need to make sure that 
yeah, there's a balance between the work that we do to keep governance afloat and the work that we do to grow the ecosystem. 100% agree with you. At the same time, how can you trust people and trust people with certain powers, duties, opportunities in the ecosystem if you do not see those people contribute to the ecosystem while it was actually built? This is, I think that this is pure logic. Again, it's no rocket science. It's not supposed to be vice versa. What did you guys expect that we would have someone we do not know to be entrusted with the fund funds or, I don't know, grassroots DAO councils? Like, how can you have someone you do not know? How about trust? This is the whole point. The trust is the whole point. So how can you trust someone you just don't know, you haven't seen, you haven't seen an action, you haven't seen contribute? But that is the warped logic that I've seen in places like CreativeStyle. Whenever they see a council that they have a good working dynamic, they attack it because it is now centralized. Yeah. Some people that may be on the extractive end of the spectrum thrive by being unknown or by dispersing power in such a way where no one can stop them. That's just the truth. I've been raising this issue since at least a year time, way before they went into review, throughout the review process and to this day. You need to have people in leadership that are able to work well together, that trust each other, that the community can trust them. It makes absolutely no sense to disqualify someone when they reach the point where everyone knows them and they know what's happening in the ecosystem. Once again, these are political games. And we have to be very shrewd in understanding what are people trying to achieve. Look, our biggest threat right now in the ecosystem is some people, given the opportunity, will extract as much value as they can in the short term, and they don't care about the long term. Like, they want to be here. And this is my warning for the NDC whenever I come in, and maybe I'm a little bit overcritical. I tell people, we cannot allow this to be a way for some people to fuck around and waste whatever 1.5 million in NDZ V0 to then find out it didn't work. Some of the things are very clear that they're not going to work. Like some of the things, if we don't lay the base foundation, should not go ahead because it's okay to fail. It's okay to take risks. It's okay to experiment. It is not okay to be mediocre just because you're able to get paid along the way. That has always been my stance, and that will always be my stance. It's not a popular one. And, and this is why it can be tricky, because at this point you may say, what is the difference between AVB now and the unhinged anon in the forum? We're both <laughs> critical, but we're critical in different ways. In my perspective, at least the fact that you've approached me to have a real person conversation. I am happy to hear you criticize. I am happy to hear your ideas, non-popular ideas. I am fine with this. And I am fine to have as well a healthy conversation on this. That's, that is basically the main thing that actually differs in, in the case of you being and me being in this podcast and me and some other people I don't know holding conversation in the comments to post on the forum that doesn't make sense. So I think that's the point, actually. I would also say that I can be critical of some things, but to me, the most important thing is 
also to find a way to propose solutions. Like I speak all the time with Blaze. I am several working groups. Right now my focus is mostly marketing DAO and regional DAO, but that is also a huge component and hopefully a takeaway for people that may be listening to this. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to speak up. Do it in a respectful way to the best of your capacity, but also be proactive in helping us come up with solutions. And this isn't really just limited to governance. This could be like, let's say some people say that our marketing is shit or that our community is dead. We have resources available for people to take initiatives that can grow the ecosystem. Inbound proposals for marketing have been open for a long time. Regional communities are now available for funding. RC DAO is being set up. Like, we really want to make sure that we have a community of like builders, not just in a technical sense, but you don't have to ask for permission. There is a world of opportunity out there. And uh, yeah, it's okay to agree to disagree as long as everyone is contributing and building. Yeah, exactly. As long as we're not stopping. So. It should progress anyway. It can be progress different ways. It can be sometimes some initiatives or some ideas that have already been started at a certain point. Maybe they need not only critics, but someone who will stop and make us look at it from a different perspective. Sometimes you can just, sometimes it requires a U-turn, but it's okay for as long as we're moving, for as long as we're, as we understand where we are moving how we want to see it. It's okay to change directions whenever you understand a certain point that maybe the chosen direction is not the best way. Maybe someone actually made you think that we might get somewhere other than we wanted on the very first, like on, on the start. And we're going to benefit from this, all of us, like the community. And it's okay, but these ideas, they should be delivered in a sense. <laughs> you, you need to make signal when you deliver this or that idea. If your idea is only based on denial, of the of the initial opinion so this doesn't make any sense because it's not bringing for you make everybody stop because of the argument you want to start and this leads us to the waste of time i can't imagine what's worse than wasting time really agreed i believe that's what some people would refer to a toxic environment it's just not conducive to anything that will yeah alina i would love if we could try to get back on that timeline because I am super curious to see how the ink for our journey intersects with the near ecosystem. And if you're open, I'd love to learn more about the different projects that you've worked with. I'm a big fan of the Open Forest Protocol, Pembroke. Okay. Work closely with Igor as well. And I'm sure there's some stories and lessons from all of them. Oh, there are, yeah. <laughs> okay. By the way, I was going to say... I don't know if you noticed that I'm wearing an NDC t-shirt. Yes, I have. I got at this Denver. I don't know if we should try posting one to you. This could be a, a new case study, an exciting adventure of things trying to get there by post. Make sure that it reaches Ukraine. And once it reaches Ukraine, it's going to reach me for sure. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. We'll see what we can do. Have my people speak to your people. Okay. Awesome. We were about to dive into the, let's call it the near era, how exactly and when you come in contact with the near ecosystem. And yeah, we'd be super curious if you could share your experience about all the projects that you've been able to share with and lessons, fun stories, anything. Oh man, that's going to be a lot. Okay. I'll try to shorten things up. The first encounter near, it was 
end of 2020. So we've been approached by the Open Forest Foundation. And these guys, starting from the very first call, it was just tremendous, really. I was so excited about the idea as is because like it was just like a breath of fresh air because previously what we've done with blockchain was finance related I mean crypto related this mining then the miner itself is a software then ambroses it was like yeah okay it, it did have a purpose right it was a supply chain but still everything is based on the crypto right and now this tremendous people just approach us and they're saying like we want to save the planet Oh my God, really? Are you out there? You want to save a planet using the blockchain? Come on, share with me. If we mention the funny stories about this, it was hilarious because I haven't had the vacation for a year and it was a real rough year for me. Like 2020 was the start of the import as an outsource company and it dealt with building. Like the whole year it was building. The company scaled from 2025 people to 95. And it happened almost during a year and a half. And it was like the most productive year for the company. So everything changed. I had to build a lot of process. I had to engage a lot of people to different activities and stuff, like set up different reporting and all of this. So I was so exhausted, like mentally, physically. So I just told to the founders of the company, guys, I need a break. Seriously, I need a break. I'm leaving for one week, but I do not want any of you to contact me. Seriously, you can handle like one week, just one week, like accept it as a challenge. So they did. And uh, I went for a vacation. It was, it was, it was December and I went to Egypt to have some sun. I took around five days and then I received a phone call from one of the founders. So the company, he's like, Hey, how are you doing? And I was like, okay, just tell me that you're just asking to how I'm doing. <laughs> he's like, yeah, but you know what? There is no, no pressure. Of course. But there, is, there are people who really want to build. And you know what they want to build? They want to plant trees. And I know how you care about the planet and how you like all of this eco. So the thing is that if you want to take it, take this client into your account, you need to do it today. And I'm like, oh, okay, send them in. And this is where I joined the call and I met the, the Open Forest Foundation, the Fred Fournier, Arlene, Loop, everybody around. And they described the concept, we started talking, and I immediately decided that I wanted, I seriously wanted to describe this project. I had Ozzy on the podcast a few months ago, and uh, I was blown away by the way that he described it. I would encourage everyone to go and listen to that one if they haven't. But I'm super curious if you could tell us in a few sentences how they described it to you at the time, because I know that it's continued to evolve and grow since. Oh yeah, it did. It really did. At that point, what they told me is that, first of all, they explained to me, which the thing that I didn't know actually for a fact, that the tree, the trunk of the tree as it grows and as it forms, it actually is the carbon dioxide that was like taken in by the tree to grow its mass. So like, I was like, what? Like, are you I didn't know that. I didn't know that too, where actually these people approached me and told me about this. So it was like, yeah, actually the tree forms its body, not the leaves, but the actual trunk and the timber is actually formed out of the carbon dioxide. Can you imagine? Mind blowing. 
Well, I'm blowing. That's exactly that's what I said. And they told me that. So that must yeah. be how they do the carbon dating. You know, when you cut the trunk and you can see the rings. You can do that without cutting the trunk. Like, whatever. hopefully. Yeah, actually, yeah, cutting is you. That's the last resort. And <laughs> we can measure it different. Like, while the tree actually. You want to find wild. out how long this <laughs> yeah, old tree has actually, been here. So they're saying that. There are people who really want to, and the first concept was actually based on reforestation. So basically it was the reforestation, the first idea that was introduced, only the reforestation. So the areas that were deforested and they want to actually grow the new trees on the areas. So whenever they plant the tree and it grows, you can actually measure certain take measurements, let's say, and it deals with the circumference of the trunk, the height of the tree, to measure how much carbon dioxide was actually consumed by the tree during period of time. Whenever you get this delta, so you, you make the first measurement and then since the time goes, like once a half a year, once a year, you just measure the tree, you see this delta, and you can actually calculate like how much carbon dioxide. And I'm like, oh my goodness, really? And they were like, yeah. And they're saying there's a lot of people, there's a lot of areas waiting to be reforested, and there's a lot of people who really want to forest plant those trees and they want to calculate this carbon dioxide. And we need this on the protocol that actually be public and we want this whole thing to be put into the blockchain. So can you guys do it? Hilarious. So I got the team, like I got our technical team, I got our chief architect and we started thinking like how we can actually do that. So we decided that we need to, yeah, so we did not need to build a fresh new like layer one but we can build the protocol on top of a certain level one. And of course, us being experts in Ethereum. So we decided to go with the client. Like in a week, we got together. I got back from Egypt and we were all set again. I've had the team already set up a certain part of the team, a core team, let's say, the technical architect, the technical lead, the smart contracts engineer. And we started talking to the client and we're like, okay, guys, we need to build this in Ethereum. And they were like, why Ethereum? Like, because Ethereum is like number one blockchain, all this stuff, it has tremendous infrastructure, it's a monster, you know, we can, we just, it can facilitate anything. It has all types of contracts that we need, like everything. And then they're saying like, have you heard of the NIR? And I'm like, what? So that was basically like the main question. I've heard about NIR, but I've heard like, there is some new block, how many blockchains appear every day? And like how many of those die within the next few months? You know, well, everybody knows, right? Like first year is basically like the survival period for any L1. So I'm like, near, okay, what's near? Then I asked my technical guys, guys, what is near? And they're like, okay, near is, is a new blockchain. They're almost like, they've just reached mainnet. They don't have anything for the time being. They're quite ambitious and stuff. So we start reaching out to people and it turned out that we do have friends among our former clients as well, who actually have quite a knowledge about the near who actually are in the foundation, like at certain levels, like in the community. And they started explaining to us, like what's going on in there. And we've seen that Nier was very, extremely ambitious. So this is the first thing that I noticed about this whole idea of a new blockchain. It's ambitious because it has tremendous plan, seriously. When I looked at their development and release plan, I was like, okay, guys, how many people do you have? Seriously, do you have an army of developers? And it was not so No, just a handful, very smart ones. Exactly. Exactly. But this is something that I found out later. And so anytime when we start a new project, 
usually like Incore never provides just the development team, even with management, doesn't matter. We provide expertise. So on our case, it usually is a research, risk management, risk assessment, which is critical, especially when you start such ambitious projects as an OFP, because we understood that OFP, the first concept that they introduced to us, it was quite simple. It was simple. We could build it. We understood that we could build it. But when they actually shared their ambitions, their plans for the future, we understood that it's going to be something real big. And when you have to build something real big, you need to assess a lot of things that might happen in the future. And this is, this is critical. And when I start... Especially because I don't know if at the time they already had the notion of the carbon credits and all no. the value that could be... okay. Because that is like a massive component when it comes to risk, but I guess oh, I won't well, get nervous. That one it was another stage, but it was a little bit later. So for the time being, no, there was no carbon credit actually. Not that it wasn't planned, but we didn't think about it. Because what we had to think about is the MRB. So basically, first we need to facilitate measurement, reporting, and verification. That's, that was the first thing. So we didn't think how we're going to be actually tokenizing the carbon. We thought how we're going to be providing proof to public on how this carbon is actually consumed so it would be calculated like in the future. So that was the main concept lying underneath this whole idea. So when I started doing this risk assessment, the first thing that I've noticed is that near might die. Seriously, like I, I look at it, like it was, it was what, like December of 2020. So you can imagine the timeline. So it's, it's barely live. It's just started. No documents. Some contracts are still in development. Lack of inventory. And I'm like, I'm looking at this and I'm saying to the clients, guys, the first thing that I really need to share with you right now is that there is a possibility that this blockchain will die in a year's time. And for full context, out of all the people that I talked to, and I whore myself around the world, every city, every conference, every event, every meetup. When I pitch near as a great place to build, I meet people with ideas, with projects. The most common asked question, which is probably the fairest question is, how do I know that near is not going to be dead in two years time? And this is today. When we have much more advanced infra documentation, big projects building on it, like that risk is always present. And I don't even want to imagine what it would have been like back in the day, because you would have been one of the first ones. And this is a long-term project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was the point. Like that was my main point of concern because I understood that, well, that these people really want to build. This is what I understood from the very first call. So when they were introducing their idea, I saw that it's not just something they want to try out. No, I saw that their concept, their idea, it was fresh. It was still like, it was an MVP, it was just the start, but it was the result of a careful research, computation, and the mind delivering. So I've seen this and I understood that they were serious about what they want to build. So this one, this was my main concern. And we talk about it a lot. Like we even talked, I was like, okay, guys, can I leave a back door? What I mean is that, can I, if you want to make sure that we're going to be like developing something that could actually be copied on Ethereum at the same time. So I would be building two, but 
in case one falls, we're going to have the other one like ready-made on Ethereum. And we'll be like, I've been coming up with different plans. But then I saw that basically I need to dedicate the whole team to one specific ill one if we want to not miss the market point when we really need to like, when there was time to market, when we needed to introduce this protocol. And it was critical to, to do it as soon as possible because the carbon economy, carbon projects, they started growing like mushrooms, really. I mean, they were appearing like with tremendous speed and we needed to make sure that we get at that train. So yeah, this was the most challenging point actually on the initiation of the project. Be super curious to know if you know how your dev set suggested near in the play first place, how they found out about it. Do you know? Well, not about the devs. The devs didn't. Actually, the client did. That was the most interesting part about this whole scene is that usually when clients get to us, and since we are experts, usually they say, okay, we, we don't know much about blockchain, so which one do you suggest? And why, of course. There are some, some clients that really want to get to the core of understanding, like why exactly are we proposing this or that technology? So they ask a lot of questions. They ask for profound research or stuff. Some people just say, okay, we rely on your expertise. Just choose whatever you want you believe is the best for this project, right? And this is where, well, usually we explain by explaining like more than a helicopter view. Like this blockchain provides, this blockchain provides, this is better in this point. And for our project, the one that's going to facilitate is this one. It's our choice. And usually people trust us with this. In this point, the client one insisting on, we want near. <laughs> I'm like, guys, this is really yeah. risky. Like, why would you want near? And they're like, we want near. And then I get it. I had misunderstood. I thought that one of your devs was the one that suggested near, but I, I didn't get there was a client. I guess it would be the same question, but from them. By any chance, do you know how the clients, or in this case, OFP, how they found out about near? Oh, they did. They had a friend who actually was one of the guys involved in the community. Later, he got involved into the project, like on, on a more profound basis. And he was actually the ambassador, basically, of NIR to the Open Forest Foundation. And this is how it was introduced to them. And the main reasons actually were the ones where actually at certain point, I was lacking reasons to tell them that guys, we still need to move as Ethereum. Those were like, I think, three main points. So. The first one was costs, of course, because Ethereum, especially at peak times, it is expensive. Transactions are expensive. In our case, we need a lot of transactions because we're, we're recording to the blockchain. So the data recording to blockchain requires transactions, so it's cost. The other one was the speed. When you, at that point, of course, it was just talks, but again, it was ambitious, right? Near was ambitious. So we knew that there would be sharding introduced. So we knew that they would actually solve the problem of the slow transactions. And the third one, they nailed it. It was sustainable. It was eco-friendly. So that was the main point because when they told us, Alina, we do understand everything that you're saying, but like, how are we going to be introducing the concept of a protocol dedicated to the actual like planet house? If we're going to be building on the blockchain that is completely out of the idea of being eco-friendly and self-sustainable. So this is where I just said, okay, I got it. Yes. That makes sense. The reason I ask, and perhaps something that I want to emphasize is if you trace back those magic moments, 
they can be very simple but very profound. It takes one community member to onboard a project like OFP. Yes. And it takes one project like OFP to go to an established services provider like Inc. for and convert this service provider into basically a machine that is now producing one, two, three, four projects in the near ecosystem. And these are the things that I'm like, okay, when we ask, what do we have to do to have that 10x in six months time, in one year time, this is what we call on our community, not to be savage assholes on the forum, but for all of us to try to go out there, meet the builders, onboard teams, and to have this replication effect. Exactly. This is a very good point. Thank you for noticing that because, yeah, it really shows the real showcase how the things work, how things are built, how communities are expanded, <laughs> tremendously expanded sometimes. And we've introduced some projects and concept for the projects to make it grow more. And I think that we're going to be doing that. We are all going to be doing that. It's just that building takes time. But, especially uh, at this, it still happens. Especially at this early stage. I think people in the real world, sometimes it's very easy to feel, or maybe in reality, the individual doesn't have much power. But in these early stage ecosystems, it's fascinating to see. I think I know who introduced OFP to Nier. That would have been Michael Kelly. And Michael Kelly was in turn introduced by Peter from Flux. So you've got a handful of individuals that by being passionate about Nier, by understanding the technology, and by taking the time to meet others and identify talent and bringing them over to Nier, now we've got several big projects like both Flux, I guess now SEDA, SEDA and OFP they're like sleeping giants they've been shipping for a long time and the project keeps evolving, they keep getting stronger, they've raised money and yeah I just keep coming back to that less time spent on governance forums, shit fights and even like telegram working groups maybe we're spending too much time talking to each other Let's get to minimum viable governance and then go out there and recruit more like-minded people, ambitious people. Totally agree with you, though. I wouldn't say that we're not doing that because actually I think that we are doing that because we are right now on the minimal viable governance model, let's say. And this is more than enough to build. And we are building. And I see projects. I see I've, I've checked the funding report, the April funding report from the Creatives DAO, not like in details for the time being, but I've started looking at it. It's just that it's a lot of projects and stuff. And I see people passionate about dedicating efforts, about bringing something new, about onboarding users, actually, like sharing the idea of guys, join us, but just start using. And like, we have a lot of things built on Nier already. You can use anything. It doesn't mean that you need to buy Nier. No, it doesn't. It's not about that. Nier tokens, native tokens, like, currencies and stuff. You don't have to do that. If you, if you don't want to use crypto, just can't, can't. don't give a shit about crypto. We have games. We have NFTs. We have music. Nier has everything. Anything you want, like anything you got used to using to, to interacting with. And we can build it. Like a yes. new project are being introduced. So just, just join by something for yourself. 100%. This is where sometimes it may be misunderstood because 
it may come across as dismissing what we already have, which it's actually a massive growth and improvement from when we got involved in 2020. But it's more so, I guess, just reiterating the message of being proactive. Like, for instance, I'm going to Seoul in just over two weeks. When I was in Seoul last year, no one knew about Nier. And I actually spoke to two VCs that told me that they don't fuck with the Nier ecosystem. They actually asked me, oh, is that still alive? Like, an extremely hot market, especially after the terror collapse. And it's going to be fascinating to see where we're at one year later, because mm -hmm. we've been investing a lot in that ecosystem. There's a dedicated BD team there. We've been onboarding gaming. There's a team doing community work. And that experience, unfortunately, it's actually very common. I've been to many Web3 meetups where people don't know about Nier. In fact, here in Auckland, in New Zealand, more people knew about Nier at a Rust meetup than at a Web3 meetup. So it's not a question of what we're doing now is wrong. Is a question of how do we get a 10x? And to me, it's just about empowering people and letting them know that if they take an afternoon and go and meet people and share the passion, that could have massive impact. Especially I see it in the Aurora ecosystem. There's a lot of people that are doing great work in communicating information and amplifying information. But given the characteristics of Aurora, where it's easier to deploy existing projects, EVM-based, or maybe more people messing around with Solidity. I met someone here in Auckland. They've got a project that is ready to ship. They never push the button because it's too expensive on Ethereum. And I'm like, I take several touches and points of contact. Now I'm like prepping them to see if they join the ENCODE Aurora Hackathon at the end of May. But that's the kind of examples of we need to just empower people and encourage them to get as many people in, especially taking into account that good ideas brew over time. And there's a lot of like networking and learning, like these are very long cycles. So yeah, kudos to everyone for the work so far and let's, let's keep it up. Yeah. And I must say that the NDC concept also is going to be helpful here. Depends on how you put it on the market, depends on how you provide information about it publicly, but that's this is a new concept, actually. And this is something I'm going to be speaking at one of the Web3 conferences in two weeks here in Cave, And I'm definitely going to be talking about this. The NDC is, it's a showcase. Okay, it's not implemented yet, fully implemented the way that it's conceived. But from what we see now, it's been initiated. And for now, it works. Let's just face it, it works. Because we do have trust. We have the funds decentralized, right? We have DAOs. At the very start, but we still have them and that they are capable of assessing projects, making decisions and stuff. So we're going to, we're going to see where the leads does, but I mean, in terms of this governance decentralization, like the real DAO, but on, on the whole blockchain level, this is something that is worth considering as the first use case. And I think that it should actually attract users, attract people to join and to see, at least to explore what's going to happen. Like really, whether it's going to fail or not, but it's definitely going to make some use. I had a very interesting conversation with a professor here at the University of Auckland. She wrote a PhD in DAOs. I think it was the last episode in the podcast. One of the concepts that a lot of people struggle and it's evolving and there can be many different versions of is decentralization. And we often focus too much and the decentralization of the decision-making, the way that I explained it to her was, if I have a great idea for growth and marketing, 
for a local bank, there is no way for me to message the board of directors and for them to give me $5,000 for me to do this and for me to feel part of the community of that bank and for me to be invested in the growth of that bank. That just doesn't exist. Everything in the real world is controlled by closed groups and it's very hard to find your way in with an open ecosystem such as Near and with the structures that we've set in place. The paradigm shift is that we are creating these avenues for anyone to be able to get involved and participate. But the challenge, and this is the references I was making before around, we set up the governance structures to enable people, but then the ball is on their court. Like our messaging needs to be very clear around now it is up to you to be proactive and come up with solutions. Show us the value, show us the passion. Like people are not used to this in the real world. And by the way, this also shifts a lot by region and culture. Some cultures are more agreeable and mm-hmm. more passive. Some cultures are more, and they'll yeah. just, they can sit still and they'll just go for it. So we need to be very clear in communicating the opportunities and encouraging people. Failure is fine as long as you have the right intent and you try your best. We draw some lessons. We also need to be, I'd say, low tolerance, if not zero tolerance, towards mischievous behavior. Yeah, something of the kind. Now, I know that we are over two hours, so I'm super curious to see if you have any other interesting stories from Pembroke or any of the other projects, or just in general, lessons from building on near. I know that one of the objectives for the podcast was to showcase not only that you're not a corrupt individual, but also that you're deeply connected with the core tech stack, core teams, and that you're well-suited for the stewardship of the trust. There's a lot of stories. Really, I could talk for hours, so I don't know. Some of those are a bit obscene sometimes if it needs to happen. Anyways, what I can say in general, okay, let's talk in general, how I end up in this trust, why I'm in this trust. Maybe this is something really like a lot, a lot of the governance forum posters like want to know. I've started with Nier since the day I was born, basically. This is when I found out that there is Nier, right? This is where I struggled to understand why Near should be chosen as one of the one one of the technologies that my company should adopt and should gain expertise in. What I understood is that yeah, Near is dedicated to building literally anything, the system. So the more you have within the system, the more people and community are actually around and use it, right? So this is something that basically is built for the common good. And this is what I understood. Why I joined the guilds? Because I wanted to build with them. Because once we were offered by the New York Foundation to join the guilds in terms of development, again, we were the first and the only development guild to actually service the community. Why? Because we were of importance there because we had expertise. We have technical expertise that was just crucial for the builders. Then. The guilds also provided us with an opportunity to learn faster and to learn more because we had cases to implement the expertise, to to get to know more, to research more on how we can implement this or that. And especially like the guilds started at around mid-21. So it was the time when a lot of in technical inventory was introduced in the protocol. A lot of documentation started appearing. We joined the NearCon and we met developers from near 
we got connected, we started talking to them, we started communicating, we started asking questions and they were happy to provide answers so that they could facilitate to us the opportunity to build, right? While they were like putting together the documentation, like public information and stuff about all of this. So based on our experience that we got working with the OFP, and we, we still develop the OFP, right? We're still releasing, by the way, Explore It Live. You might want to check it. Real project. Amazing. While, For sure. Send me the link. I'll include in the show notes. Of course I will. Of course I will. Actually, it's on their Twitter and they've made an announcement about this. Yeah, of course, I'll share it the link with you. Like around 49 projects now. While gaining this whole expertise in here and the OFP, and my company being at the peak of its development, and we had a lot of resources, we had people with expertise and stuff, and we knew how to build our own project and our own products that actually made value, we decided that we want to build this protocol because we liked it. Seriously, we liked the vibe, we liked the idea, we liked the management, we liked the teams involved. Regardless of the problems, like there were problems, of course, there were problems in the guilds, there were problems in communication with developers along as well, but it's, it's a live being, it's a society, like it's, it's a real collection of different individuals. Of course, you always have some gaps some problems and stuff, but overall, we saw it as the healthy start for a new community that we definitely wanted to be part of and that we definitely wanted to facilitate to onboard new people because we wanted this small society to grow. And that's when we built the Pembroke Finance because basically the leverage yield farming was something new at a certain point. Of course, not at the point when we released the Pembroke because we needed some time to build it. But still, it was new to the near ecosystem, right? Ethereum had alpaca. And everybody knew that it's cool. We've researched and we've seen a lot of users there. My founders in my company were keen on leverage yield farming. So I, I remember... Ozzy introducing Igor to me at East Denver last year at a brewery during, I think it was the Super Bowl. Obviously, Igor and I were just like yeah, eating and drinking, not paying, yeah, not paying much attention to the football. And Igor tried to explain to me in a napkin how Pembroke worked. And I was like, I have no fucking idea what this man is saying. Like, I don't know why he was so technical. Maybe I drank too much. Like, when I saw the actual product, I was like, okay, I get it now. But back then, I was like, what is he talking about? Like, I just, yeah. It was fascinating just to see the evolution and the product live. And it being one of the leaders by TVL. I, I personally use it. I've been like, we did it as well, by the way. We <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, yeah look at that. Yeah. It works. Liquidation works. That is still that it works, of course. <laughs> so, well, anyways, when we started building this whole thing, so we built the Pembroke, we've seen how it actually flew when it started flying. Like, we had the, around two months from the start of the product, we had TBL reaching $6 million worth, and it was a big deal. Actually, it was like, we understood that the community really needed it. So we knew that there was need. But because, well, Igor introduced this concept to a lot of people, like during near cons and different conferences in the communities, like workshops and all this, we wanted to see them loot, whether they want it or not. But at the same time, we knew that leveraged yield farming once introduced will definitely be needed, like we knew about it. So it was no big surprise when we actually launched it. And we're really, we're proud that we've done this because basically it was one of 
not many projects at that time that from the very initiation, from the very start till, till it's actually released, reached this goal. I'm proud. This, this is tremendous. There's been a huge team involved in this. Igor dedicated a lot of his personal efforts and expertise to this. And uh, yeah, I'm happy that we have it. Then we also, well, we also built some other things, like we built the Gina.io, the, this is the RPC provider service and the node benchmark for the near, because again, because we wanted to facilitate the developers, because we knew that we needed it. Because when we started working with the near products, we understood that the RPC provider is something that really lacks for us. We decided like, why are we going to be waiting for someone to build this? We can build it on our own. So that's what we did. The same thing with the validator. So yeah, we joined the list of the validators on here. Of course, we do have the validator node. And uh, we thought about the liquid staking. We do have the staking service, the Flurkin IO. By the way, named after my cat, <laughs> the Flurkin. Amazing. Fun fact is Flurkin named after my cat, while Pembroke is named after Igor's dog. Because Igor's dog is a Pembroke Corgi. So it's after his no breed. No way. Yeah. Yeah, so he has the Sambra Corgi. Is that also the dog in the website? Yeah, this is his name is Alf. That is hilarious. That is such yeah. a good fun well, fact. Join our page at the near social because actually this type of stories that we were posting it there. And we introduced Alf with the real pictures of the dog. So yeah, it was actually named after the dog. And when we and when we started the staking service, it was the same. Like Igor was why don't you want to, it's going to be your project. So do you want to name it somehow? And I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, why name it Flurkin as your cat? I'm like, okay, let it be. So that's how it all started. And then when I went to the last NearCon, there was one day when I was wearing the Flurkin short and I had this logo in there, like with this kitty. And the actual motto of this whole thing was take with my kitty. Because we wanted people to say it was our one. Yeah. Yeah. So. Igor is the funniest person. I don't know if you ever told you. I was in Medellin, in Colombia, and I'm walking out of WeWork, and I just run into Igor. Like, he's just standing there. And I'm like, Igor, what the fuck are you doing in Colombia? Oh, it was the Erdal meetups. The work yeah. meetups. And, well, yeah, I found out afterwards. But it was so strange because I'd been in Colombia for weeks. And we meet weekly for the refinance community board. And he didn't tell me. Like we, we literally ran into each other on the streets of Colombia. And I was like, this is the most random thing that has ever happened. <laughs> me, Ukrainian dude, just standing there. Uh, I bet he was surprised too, actually, to see someone real familiar. He was confused. And I was like, Igor, you knew that I was here. I didn't know that you were here. And by the way, that night... We went out to a Mexican restaurant. I had some horrible fajitas. I don't know what I ordered. And then I fell sick for two days. I blame really? Igor on that one too. Make sure he knows it. He paid for it. So I'm not going to complain too much, but. Okay. Makes sense. And uh, by the way, through the guild, I actually like, got introduced to a lot of people inside of the community of the ecosystem in the foundation. This is how the community works. Sharing like all the time, just sharing what's like. How can I help you? I know people from there. Let me introduce you. And I've been introduced to people the same very way that later helped me to integrate. That's massive. And that's why I give so much thought to how we structure all these community programs and governance. Twofold first, I think that the downfall of the original Guilds program was probably that lack of 
critical thinking and leadership, we never addressed things that were not working and we never gave enough guidance to people to help them succeed. It went from everything to nothing. It was a bit abrupt and it should have been handled differently. But. Yeah, it shouldn't have. But still, it done its part. Maybe not the way it was actually initially well planned to, but it's still done its part in yes. mainly building the community, the core community, because this is where we all met. Yes, but that is the second part of my reasoning, which is you and I got that experience in that community that have outlasted the original program. But now the question is, how can we make sure that as new people join the ecosystem? they can also be connected and find those opportunities because, and this is by the way, something that I've identified, those disgruntled people on the governance ecosystem, sometimes what's happening is that they only get to experience the handful of telegram groups where they're in. Those groups have not changed in months, like it's the same people and those people are actually not building anything. So their perception of what's happening on the new ecosystem is completely skewed because they don't have visibility or they're not connected to these other builder cohorts. That's why we're putting so much effort into amplifying people's achievements and milestones, because at scale, the personal connections made always possible. But also, we just want to make sure that there are always pathways for people to keep connecting and integrating. I'm pretty bullish now on regional communities and local groups of builders, but there's probably a lot more that we can be doing. It's a challenging part, but again, I think a lot's been introduced to facilitate that. This also helps because it helps connect local communities for local communities that can actually feel more confident with the idea of near, with the people around. And then it's easier for them to integrate to more global community on the near, to meet the right people and to start doing something there, to start using, to start building, to develop whatever your intentions are, but still you can find a place in there. The regional communities really help here. We had a meeting yesterday with one of the new product managers at Pagoda. So if they just want to gather some feedback, we'll be migrating the marketing operations over to the boss. So in your social, I was pretty candid. I was like, look, I don't really understand what it is. Is it a social network? Is it a GitHub? Is it like a product hunt? Like. It's trying to be too many things at once and it's a little Mm -hmm. bit hard to navigate. Personally, I think he loves the feedback because once again, it's a challenge of people don't like to speak out or are very complacent. They just assume somebody else is going to do the work, but how can the work ever get done if you don't get any feedback? Exactly. Is there anything that you're particularly bullish about or paying attention to? On the near social, I mean. Or in general, could be. In general. Uh, I'm human, I guess. Like we are, we're talking about near the I'm human and anything related. I love the concept of zero knowledge. I love the concept of SBT. And actually, this is something I'm really researching on right now and trying like to, to deep dive because I'm going to be speaking about this at the conference. So I want to get to know as much as possible. But what I'm doing is that I'm trying to design the future concept. So like we, we have the SBTs now, we have zero knowledge. It is still rarely used. But it is there. Once such concepts, some revolutionary concepts like this are introduced, it's irreversible. They're not going anywhere. It's like blockchain. Once Satoshi introduced the concept, everybody knew that this is the future. The same thing with this was the SBTs. If you had to convince people listening to go and do the I am human verification as soon as they finish listening, how would you describe it? Like what is the value add? What is the role in the ecosystem? 
The value add is that this takes accounts and people on blockchain to a completely new level. Why we need blockchain? Because basically we want to have this freedom of using the funds, of sending the funds, of interacting financially among peers without these limitations that are set up by third parties, banking systems. And it's not because we want to break the law or whatever. It's just that the world is faster than all of those systems that have been built before. And they are too dependent on the human factor. Like who can verify you? And this depends on sole bank clerk for him to decide whether your transaction is going to go through or not. So this is something that they, they find outrageous and completely dinosaur level thing. So why we need blockchain? And blockchain, I can just do that. I want to send money to you, let's say, some tokens or whatever. I just do that. And the transaction will definitely get verified because I am the same individual as any other individual who has a wallet and account on blockchain. We're all equal here. And the system works for everybody in the same way. So why the SBTs? Real important. Because these things can actually prove that we are real people. And this is something that can block out those fake accounts that we have. The SBT as the concept provides this necessary step that is required for the person to prove the belonging of a certain account to themselves as an individual, as a physical entity. And that's the main criterion that we need right now for all these transactions to be justified and for the bot transaction to be put out. I guess for a narrower set of use cases where you want to make sure that you're transacting with a human or to avoid a human transacting multiple times as different people, this would allow us to verify them on chain so I cannot pull off a Voldemort and split my soul across seven different accounts. No, not really. We haven't hacked it yet. And another funny story, I'm going to be short. So when we've been actually testing the sound, we tried the face verification, how it deals with biometry. So it verified a white male, be pretty okay. Okay, you introduced one one of our developers. Just like, like good right looking? There. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, he's good looking. So he verified himself like real, real quick, no problem. Then we tried to compromise the system because we, we did we did testing, right? So we showed the dog. So when we showed the dog, he started scanning the muzzle and it's like, okay, this is not human, sorry. We're like, okay, thanks, you passed. And then the other guy or one of the developers who has a beard actually tried to verify himself. And you know what it said? It's not a human. He was the first version, like the better version. <laughs> and it just said, oh, I don't human here. And he's no way. And he started scanning his face because, well, he has a beard, but still like he has a human face. And no, no human, sorry. So we were joking, like inside joke that he's a Yeti. And Yeti is a completely different kind than a human being. <laughs> is a ne Neanderthal? That's hilarious. Yes. Yeah. Look, if it makes you feel better, a few years ago, I was going to some friends. We went to China together. And at the airport, the machine, this is national security in Australia, the machine that scans you on the way out stopped me and said, please remove your hat. You were wearing a I was not wearing a hat. I just had my weird hair. And I was like, look, if this is a stage of like top $100 million contract national security, you're doing fine with it. I am human and you're human, <laughs> my friend. This is hilarious. <laughs> it well, is what it is. Happens. Yeah. So yeah, I, I really advise everyone to get the LPT 
the second verification is going to be real, real interesting because that's going to be the kind of verification where the community provides the KYC for you. So you need to say that I'm the member of the community. The, your account should be created, is, if I'm not mistaken, in the start of 2022, so that you could really, it's not what's created yesterday or something. Then you need to point out the names of people inside of the near foundation community or whatever, like people who, who are like known to the community, that they know you and that they can give you reference. And then there's going to be like kind of a, well, information fetching sessions, like interviews or whatever with these people so that they could really confirm that. Like in my case, yes, this is Alina. I know her. She's been to NearCon. She's second grade as a Unity Verified member. Facting to happen like as soon as possible because this is going to be interesting. That's pretty hardcore. That's always been the challenge. How can we replicate online, especially in a decentralized way and in a very rapidly growing ecosystem, the same reputation mechanisms that we have in the real world. I see you in the real world. Yeah. I get to know you. Yeah, we have friends great. in common. Like, I mean, if you want to claim a role or to do something for the governance of new, for some councils, if you want to apply, you need to have the soulbound token. Like this specific KYC community related token, because the community need to know you and you should be a contributor who actually proven some track records of what you've done for this ecosystem. And this is the... Yeah, that's what's making the distinction between having a narrower well, set of circumstances where you want to prove who you are. I've got multiple accounts. Most of my assets are in accounts that I don't have explicitly associated with me, nor do I want to. But yeah, things like public service is a different bar for transparency and accountability. I like podcasts. My first podcast, really. One-to-one. Right. -one. Yeah, yeah. I've been to some community podcasts, but one-to-one -one is a conversation the first time. It's a pleasure to have you. That's one of the objectives of the podcast, and it's very much linked to everything we've been discussing. I want to make sure that there isn't just one person that we look up to in near, I don't know, like an Ilya or a Shevchenko. I want to make sure that as we get more and more contributors and community leaders and interesting people, Maybe you're not like a super rock star developer or something, but you've got personality. You've got ideas. Like we need to find a way to elevate these people and hyper-connect everyone. And I have to say that this is the 44th podcast and with pretty much all the conversations, I'm impressed because I always know who the guest is before they come on board, but it's more like I know what they've worked done. It's always nice to get to that personal level. And yeah, I always end up feeling like I've connected more closely with a new friend and ideally people listening that as well. And that is probably drawing from like years of listening to tons of content and identifying that dynamic that when you get to listen to someone unfiltered for two hours for however long, you really feel like you know them, even though you technically don't. So yeah. More than happy to give you a platform and hopefully the haters in the forum will listen through. No, they won't trust me on this one. <laughs> we need those ratings. I'll make some clips of the most explosive bits. But seriously, who cares? It was spend a good time. <laughs> so basically my main goal was to, well, talk to you and, and showing messages, like sending out messages. I think that those who want to hear it, they're going to hear it anyways. 
even without the podcast. Alina, thanks so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for inviting. It's so nice talking to you, really. And I had fun. <laughs> It's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any Got a steamy hot pipeline of guests.